Well, open your Bibles this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through, through 5. We're working through a section on how to be unified in the church of Jesus Christ. But as you have seen, it addresses much more than, than that. And we've just plunged into chapter 2 where Paul is continuing his Christ-like exhortations that he actually started back in chapter 1, verse, verse 27. And so after Paul's gracious greeting and his thankful prayer and then updating the, the Philippians, and then, of course, us on his challenging circumstances, Paul calls us to, to live a gospel-worthy life. And in particular, the end of chapter 1, it focuses on a gospel-worthy life outside of the, of the church. He says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Conduct yourselves uh, before those who are, are without, in a manner that that is worthy of the, of the gospel of Christ. And, and he told us that, that that looks like standing and striving and, and suffering and, uh, and a steady life. Now in chapter 2, he's calling us to a gospel-worthy life inside the church. So he says, be of the same mind, maintaining the, the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one purpose. And, and he says, that looks like, it looks like unity. And the church at Philippi has no doctrinal issues that we know of, no, no moral decay, no false teachers, but, but it does have the danger of, of division. And just like the, the two ladies that were called out in chapter 4, we're to live in harmony in the Lord. And, and the passage that we're working through is actually a how-to guide, how, how to do that. And it's, it's a wonderful gift from, from the Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5 has three parts, and they, they, they go together like building blocks. They build a theology on, on unity, or as one put it, how not to divide the, the church. And Paul starts with the motivations for unity. We saw that in, 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 in verse 1. This is the why that, that you and I strive for, for unity. It's because all that God has done for us in Christ. He says, because there's encouragement in, in Christ's work, because there's consolation in God's love, because there's fellowship and affection in the, in the Spirit's ministry, you and I have extraordinary motivations to seek unity in the, in the church and give to the Lord what is most precious in, in His sight, which is His bride. Next, he, he defines the target that we're aiming at. If we're talking about unity, what, what is unity? And then unity is defined for us in verse 2. It's what it, what it looks like. We're not aiming at cheap conformity masquerading as, as unity. Paul says we're talking about gospel-motivated, Christ-fueled harmony that's evident through four characteristics. It's a unified church has one mind, it has one love, it has one spirit, and it's intent on one purpose. It's not this bootstrap effort that depends only on us. Everything listed in verse 2 is a, is a love response to what the Lord has done for you in verse 1. And because every believer has experienced the same thing in Christ, every believer can be exhorted to, to pursue it. And so Paul says that you and I can't 
think the same way about everything outside the church, but we can think the same way inside the church because we have the mind of Christ. And now today, in verses 3 and 4, God gives us his method to pursue unity. It's the how of unity. The engine is Christ's gracious work. The, the target is to be one-souled or one-minded. That's what we are to pursue. And, and today, it's, it's, it's how do we get there? Or as MacArthur called them, the motivations, the marks, and the means for spiritual unity. It, it's like ABC and, and 1, 2, 3. I mean, they're, they're laid out here in a very elementary fashion. And and while they're laid out at a grade school level, following what is found in verses 3 through 5 is like a doctoral level project if you've, ever, if you've ever tried to do it. Do nothing from selfishness. How many of you did that this past week every, every single day? Is that easy? Have a humble view of yourself. Regard others as more important than yourselves. Is, that's pretty tough to do. In fact, it's impossible apart from the Spirit of God. But that's heart-level stuff and impossible without the Spirit of Christ. So as you listen today, don't let this passage just, just hit the surface. God's not just aiming at your actions. It, it, this passage aims beneath the surface, at, uh, sur surface, at your attitudes. Uh, I think sometimes we, we treat preaching or the Bible like, like a dictator hiding underground from a coalition missile attack. Our, our sin is buried so, so deep that God has to bring a, a, bun, a bunker-busting bomb to, to reach it. And yet when the Bible's preached, what, what we're to do is just stand out in the open and invite the airstrike. I mean, here I am. Whatever is in me that needs to be removed, uh, Lord, Lord, hit me with it. You know, remove anything that's outside of uh, uh, of Christ, and we clearly needed to be need to be guided by, by the Word of Christ, not the culture, not our rights or our passions, but but God's very thoughts. I I told the men this last week that, that this this year, I mean, recently these past few months has been an equal opportunity challenger. I mean, some of us have been challenged by governmental overreach to demand our rights, and and now others are being challenged to demand their rights over abuse of authority and their feelings. And, and God says that you and I have no mandate to transform the culture or preserve it. Your task is to live as Christ, and that will transform sinners for the kingdom. And, and if you do it, then it will inevitably accomplish both things. The culture will be transformed, and you'll preserve in it whatever is, whatever is good. And the method that, that God gives us... In, involves five approaches that we, that we must maintain. God's method for unity. In this passage, there are five pursuits that produce Christian unity. Five pursuits that produce Christian unity. You're to deny self-interest in verse 3. You're to disown self-glory also in verse 3. You're to develop a slave-like attitude. You're to disavow self-focus and you're to deliver service to others. Five pursuits that produce Christian unity. In verses 3 through 5 here, there are two negative attitudes to eliminate and one positive outlook to cultivate, and then there's some instructions mingled in in those, in those two negatives and one positives. And when, 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 you, when you lay it all out there, there are 
are five methods to, to apply. And all five of them kind of give you a full-orbed picture of the pursuit uh, of unity. This is what you must include and what you must exclude if you want to please Christ and have harmony in the church. And I would say harmony in your heart as well. Can you gather to celebrate all that the Lord has done for us in the cross and in the resurrection and then not give Him what is most precious in, in His sight, unity in His church? I think not. And so here is what we, we, we must pursue. The first pursuit. Look at that one. It's to deny self-interest. Look if you would at verse 3. Paul says, Do nothing from selfishness, or empty conceit. There are two things there. We'll look at the first one. Do nothing from selfishness or deny self-interest. God starts by saying, if, if we want to have a one-minded unity in Christ, then the first thing we must do is to reject self. In the original, this is a, this is a double negative. A, neither selfish ambition nor vain conceit. There's no verb here. It, but the idea of do nothing is a force of a command. It's God saying we must avoid two egocentric ways of, of thinking. And the, the first one is to eliminate selfishness from, from our motives, from the why that, that, we, that we do things. Deny focus on personal accomplishments or personal a- ambition. I mean, that makes sense, right? I mean, you can't focus on unity or harmony with others if you're, if you're interested in yourself, if, if yourself is, is, is right in front of your eyes all the time. This, this word is actually listed, selfishness, this word, is actually listed in the works of the flesh. In Galatians 5.22, which is why in the, the, the King James, or maybe some of your versions, it's why it's translated strife. Because they're extrapolating to, to, to what it produces. This, this attitude of selfishness in the heart produces strife. That, that translation assumes what will come from this, from this attitude. It, the word literally means divisions or seditions or dissensions. They're the splits, which are the inevitable result of, of self-interest. Self-interested attitudes form factions. To be self-seeking, self-directed, self-concerned brings about division. Because that attitude then gets attached to a cause or, or an opinion, and it leads you to then identify with whatever that cause is, that ideal or that interest, instead of Christ. Which is what we identify with, or who we identify with when we... We gather in the church. I mean, an example of that, you can find many examples in the Bible. I think the one most prominent in the New Testament is, is, is Jews and Gentiles. You can attach to your Jewishness or your Gentile nature, your, your ethnicity. And God told the Jews not to glory in their Jewishness, but, but in Christ, in God's covenant. He told the Gentiles, don't flaunt your freedom as being Gentiles, but remember that you're a wild olive branch grafted in. You're nothing special because you don't have to have these ceremonial pursuits that the Jewish people do. And While this verse is taken out of context uh, uh, many times to to remove any type of distinctions between males or or, or females, the context of this passage is, is about salvation, is about Christ. Listen to it. For as many of you 
as we're baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. The, you all come through the, through the same door, regardless of your, of your ethnicity or, or your, your gender or whatever it is, but in Christ you, you, you are one. And we're talking about the unity that, that's here. God says you're Christian. Little Christ, not anything that you are or were before. That's the source of your, of your unity. And, and a focus that creates division is identifying with anything outside of that. And you can't be one mind with others or one anything if your mind is set on, on yourself, on your own ambition. So Paul starts here with selfishness. I mean, think about it. How can true Christianity cohabitate with self-anything? I mean, the very way of salvation is to die to self so you can be, you can be raised to life with Christ. I mean, the very essence of, of your, your new life is to live pleasing unto the Lord, not pleasing unto self. Be pleasing unto the Lord. Is this pleasing unto the Lord? That's the question that we ask and the way we live, whether absent from the body or, or present. We want to be pleasing to the Lord. And the very actions that flow from your Christian, from your Christian walk is... It's for others. It's not for you. Now, Paul's already illustrated this, this self-interest, this word, as a heart problem back in chapter 1, verse 17. Do you remember when Paul was in prison and he just gave us that, that, that shocking illustration where he says, I'm in prison and some people are preaching uh, out of selfish ambition and, and some aren't, and no matter what, I'm just thankful that Christ is preached. It's the same word. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from, from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. James Montgomery Boyce said, uh, Luke tells us that when Paul arrived in, in, in Rome, Christians went out to meet him like, like, uh, like people turn up for a celebrity at, at the airport. And that, that made some other preachers in Rome jealous and and now Paul is in prison and nobody's there. They have to search for him to even find him. And while that, that was happening, there were people that were preaching. They were trying to take him down a few pegs, remove, remove some of his apostolic status. Now think of this. Think of what Paul's saying here. Paul is saying you can even preach the gospel with selfishness or out of selfishness, with self-interest. I mean, how contrary is that? The very message that you preach is Christ alone and, and faith alone and, and grace alone, for the glory of God a, a, alone. And you can preach that message with hope of gaining something, some personal significance or, or benefit. How contrary is that? It's about as contrary as being part of the body of Christ, that you've come by that same self debasing salvation, and then to think more highly of yourself than, than you ought. The point is this. This is not something that only unbelievers do. Selfish ambition is something that Christians can, can do, they can possess. And selfish ambition is toxic to unity. It's toxic in the church. It's like the black mold 
of Christian harmony. It, it, it's like the, the after-lunch garlic to a church's breath. It, it, if it's in your heart, if it's in the church, it's, it's like the first whiff that you get when you open the refrigerator doors and, and there's a smell in there that knocks you down and you have no idea what it is. It looks good on the outside. And you think that the refrigerator is doing what it's supposed to do, but, but the Lord opens the doors where there's divisions and selfish ambition and, and it stinks. You say, well, how do I know whether I'm self-focused or, or not? Well, what do you live for? Uh, Piper provided some helpful questions that, that I think can, can put your heart to the test. He said, do you love the thought that you exist to make God look glorious? Do you love the, the thought that you exist to reflect and display the glory of God? Does that bring joy to your heart that, that I am on planet Earth to make God look glorious because He is? Are you glad that your salvation is meant to put His grace on display? I am saved to the praise of the glory of His grace. Are you glad that the point of being saved is, is to put the display of grace out there for people to see it in, in your life? Do you love seeing and showing the glory of, of God? Is that your treasure? Do you do all things for, for that? This is why He created the universe. This is why He ordained history. It's why He sent His Son. It's why He created you. It, it's why He saved you to see and to savor and to show the glory of Christ, who is the, the image of God. Your life is not about self. And self will never satisfy your soul if you try to live for that. That's what Ecclesiastes has been telling us, isn't it? One long book with a simple message. Vanity of vanities. And all of those questions that, that Piper asked reveal the eyes of your heart, where they're focused. And if they're, if they're not on Christ, then you're preoccupied with, with yourself. And a preoccupation with self is disorienting. Because when you're looking at, at yourself, you aren't looking to Jesus. It's disappointing. Because you'll never find in yourself what you're, what you're looking for. Therefore, it, it frequently leads to discouragement and, and despair. And that's the attitude of selfish ambition. And that attitude can drive a person to vain conceit. Here's the second pursuit to produce. Another negative. Disown self-glory. Look if you would at verse 3 again. Do nothing from selfishness. Or empty conceit. There's number two. Paul uses a term here for empty conceit. Empty glory. It's a term that, that combines two words. Kenodoxia. Uh, and I'm not giving you a, a Greek lesson. It's, it's, it's important because they, it means exactly what it says. You've heard of the kenosis of Christ. The emptying of, of Christ. And then you've heard of, of you know, of... Of doxia, the, the glory, it's, it's empty glory. Two words. If the first phrase, do nothing from selfishness, means a focus on personal goals, this one is a focus on personal glory, one writer said. It's an over-inflated self-image. God's saying don't have an, an over-inflated image of yourself. It, it means to polish a facade that's, that's empty. 
Did your brother or sister ever pull the, you want to stick a gum trick on you? I don't know how much this translates now. When I was growing up, you, you had packs of gum, right? Spearmint and Juicy Fruit and, and Tea Berry. It was one of my favorites. And, and you, you pull the stick of gum out and then you take the wrapper off and then you open up the tinfoil and you take the stick of gum out and you eat it. And then you throw it away. But the joke is then you, you meticulously fold back up the, the tinfoil and you stuff it back down in the, in the wrapper and then you put it back in the, in the gum and you ask them if they want a piece of gum. And then, of course, you know, they pull it out and, and it's empty. This word is, has that idea. It's empty glory. It looks like there's something there. You pretend like there's something there, but it's, a, but it's an empty wrapper. It's what Jesus said of the Pharisees when he pronounced the, the seven woes on them in Matthew 23 and beyond. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! First, he says, you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of robbery and self-indulgence. And now the verse on your screen, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, watch this, which appear on the outside beautiful, but on the inside they're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So too, outwardly you appear righteous to men, but inwardly you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He said they, they were adorned with an image of holiness on the, on the outside. That's what they, that's what they pursued. That's what they, that's what they promoted. But on the inside, they're, they're full of wickedness. They, they didn't obey this passage. They didn't disown self-glory. And a person who pursues vain conceit, self-glory, has an exaggerated self-evaluation. And they try to prove it on a regular basis. This is the person uh, who considers themselves always to be right and expects others to agree with them. <laughs> it's a person who's wise in their own estimation, Romans eleven twenty five. It's a false illusion. And social media is the weed bed for this flesh-polishing stinkweed. I think it's just actually the breeding ground for everything this, this entire passage says to avoid. Now, let me preface what I'm getting ready to say to tell you that I don't have social media. I'm not saying that as, you know, that's some righteous thing. I just don't. I'm saying that to tell you that what I'm getting ready to say, if it hits you between the eyes, I have not been on your Facebook page. So I'm not aiming at any of you. But if it hits home, then, then obey the Lord. <laughs> And there's nothing that shows how self-focused we are than being a wannabe insta-influencer or making a TikTok to see how many people affirm how great you are. Look at the pictures that you post. Listen to what you write about yourself and, and about others. I mean, you have 20-something Christian girls doing their devotions in public and then admonishing the world to give it all to Jesus Beside, beside a swimming pool or a picturesque lake. I mean, this, there's a passage that speaks to that. It's in Matthew 6, 5. When you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the, the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they, they have their reward in full. I mean, it's vapid. It's, it's, it's empty glory. 
It's a place for virtue signaling. I am so righteous and I care about stuff way more than you do, and, and if you don't, you're, you're bad. Whether it's government tyranny or Second Amendment rights or wear masks or don't wear masks or now police brutality or Black Lives Matter, or I'm uh, not a racist, everyone's a racist, women's rights, Me Too movement, constitutionalist, whatever it is. I mean, you pull it up and depending upon who the person is, you'll, you'll see what's animating their heart. Do you know Proverbs 17, 28? There's a modern application of Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool, when he keeps from posting, is considered wise. When he closes his smartphone, he is considered prudent. <laughs> it's an avenue to violate James 3, isn't it? You should not say things that you should be ashamed to think as a Christian, much less plaster publicly. Jesus never tells us to give anyone a piece of our mind unless it's the mind of Christ. <laughs> Look at what you write and ask. Is this a piece of Christ's mind or carnality? It's a platform without accountability. I mean, uh, people post many sermons and passionate diatribes online without, without any accountability. And whatever I say from this pulpit doesn't just affect my, my Twitter followers. It, it affects all of you. You're my accountability, and I want that accountability. Not only that, but the elders and scrutinized. I mean, many of you, several times, in many words, there is transgression. I mean, think of, of how many words I speak, and there have been times when I've spoken words that have hurt people unintentionally. Just the way you said that, or that seemed callous or, or otherwise. And thankfully, someone is sitting in the pew came to me and said, this is the way that, that I heard that. And I'm able to ask their forgiveness. And that always makes me tremble because I, I have no idea how many times I've done that whenever they don't tell me whatever it is that, that I've said. There's a, there's a level of accountability that, that's there. And I want that. Because every word that I say or every word that you say or that you post that influences others will be judged on the last day. <clears throat> that's why James says in chapter 3, Verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Paul says, do nothing from the position or approach of vain glory in the church because it hinders Christ-pleasing unity. Don't seek power or prestige or position because that stands in direct contrast to the way that your master operated. And when you do that, you challenge Christ for his rightful place. The only one who will be exalted. He gets all the glory because he humbled himself unto death. Even, even death on the cross. Knees only bow to him, not us. Even if it's the little knee of self-importance or, or self-respect. But he gives us a third one. Boy, it feels like a buster bunking, uh, bunker busting bomb, doesn't it? The third pursuit to produce Christian unity is to develop a slave-like attitude. Look at you at verse 3 again. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Here's the third one. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. That word for humility of mind means 
means a slave-like attitude. I mean, it literally means to think like a slave. John MacArthur said it conveys the idea of, of being low or common, base, shabby, scummy, unfit, useless. You cannot find the word in secular Greek before the New Testament because it wasn't a virtue in the Roman world. No, nobody wanted to, to emulate this. It was, it was a term of derision. This is a word that, that Christians invented because humility was, was considered something to overcome, not, not exalt. And, and yet it is the central, central attitude of the Christian heart, humility. I mean, do you see our culture saying thinking like a slave is good? <laughs> Lower yourself. Think less of yourself rather than better. Strive for last place in line. No, it says you have rights and, and you have to demand them. Just the opposite. And thinking like a slave will damage your self-esteem. That's what the culture says. But God says if you want to please Christ, if you want to walk as a spirit-filled Christian, if you want to pursue unity, then you need to think less of yourself and think as if you have no rights at all. Instead of being selfishly ambitious, personally vain, do the opposite. Maintain humility of mind. That's where unity always begins. Unity is born out of, out of humility. Gavin Ortland said, We think humility is an impossible burden, but in reality it's as light as a feather. There, there's nothing more relaxing than humility. Pride grumbles at everything, but humility can joyfully receive life as a gift. You've heard the, you know, the, the joke about humility. The minute that, you, that you're, you think you're humble, you're not humble anymore. You're actually proud because <laughs> you're, you're proud about how humble you are. Well, humility, true humility doesn't worry about that because true humility is self-forgetfulness. If you're humble, you're, you're not thinking about yourself at all. You're not thinking about how humble you are, how proud you are. You're not thinking about your, yourself at all. It's thinking of yourself less. It's, it, it's not self-preoccupation. It doesn't mean that you hide your talents or, or that if you're good at something, you, you walk around going, oh, I... You know, just, uh, just praise the Lord. It's, it, it's all Him. Of course it's all Him. You don't put on a, a, a false air. That's not being humble. Don't hide your talents or hate yourself. If you're humble, you just don't think about yourself at all. Humility of mind is the joy of thinking about Jesus more and yourself less. How much of your time is spent thinking about yourself? How much of your prayers are spent praying for your wants and your fears and, and, and your desires? Listen, you have them, so do I. And God cares about them. I shared in the 830 service that, you know, with the, the heart issue that, that, I, that I was having, I mean, when it, it begins to take place, I, I would have this just shakiness, like, a, like anxiety, and, I, and I'm sitting here in my head going, I'm not afraid to die. I, mean, I, I know I'm indestructible until the Lord is done with me. I mean, in my head, I, I know the right things, and, and what's happening in my, in my body is not equating to what's going on, on in, my, in my head. And I remember just pouring that out before, before the Lord and, and, and thinking, 
does God really even care about this? And then immediately verses come to my mind going, of course he does. And just plead with the Lord for help and he, he would grant me help. God cares about the frustrations and the hurts and the fears that you have. There's been plenty of them that's been going on in the last several months. may even have them this morning. But how much of your life is, is spent focused on that and on yourself? Well, it's directly correlated to humility. The answer to that question, how much you think about yourself and how much you make life about yourself, tells you how far from humility you really are. And being aware of your sin and seeing yourself rightly under the light of the Bible is how you get there, how you gain that mind. Look at verse 3 again. It says, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than, than yourselves. I mean, when you think of yourself biblically, I am like a, a lowly slave of Christ, then you'll naturally regard others as more important than yourself. I mean, the second half of this verse goes with the first half. It's impossible to, to do the second half. It's impossible to... Uh, you know, to, uh, to regard one another as more important than yourselves without humility of mind. They, they go together. And it's not natural to, to think of others as more important than yourselves, is it? I mean, that's depravity 101. I mean, we are born crying, I am here, and you must pay attention to me, right? I mean, just go to a hospital ward. Spend time as a, as, as a, new, as a new parent. The only way to think more of others is to think less about yourself, and you won't think less about yourself unless you think rightly. So how do you do that? How can you consider others superior to yourself when what's natural is to think of yourself first and superior? Well, MacArthur gives us some help on this one, I think. He says, look at your own heart. Do you know the heart of any person? Do you know what's in another person's heart? No, no, you don't. You ever witness to somebody and they say, don't judge me, you don't know my heart. And they're right. I can't see in somebody's heart. I don't know their heart. I can see their actions. I mean, the Bible calls us to make functional judgments. If we say we have fellowship with God and yet we, we walk in darkness, we live our lives a certain way, contrary to the Bible, we lie and do, do not the truth. So, I mean, the Bible calls us to, to make functional judgment. You can see somebody's fruit, the fruit of their life, their actions, but you can't, can't see the heart. The final judgment is, is, is up to God. You can't see inside a person's heart. A, a wife may say to her husband, John said, I, I know what you're thinking, and, and she may be right, and she, and she may not. But I really don't know what's in somebody's heart. But there's one heart that we do know, isn't it? And it's our own. You have enough information right there to give yourself a low estimate of what you really are. So it shouldn't be any major issue for you or me to, to look at someone else as superior to yourself. You don't know what's in their heart, but you know exactly what's in your heart. And that's how you develop a slave-like attitude. Look at yourself accurately, and when you do, you'll conclude, as the Apostle Paul did, even toward the end of his life, I am the chief of sinners. And then it will be no problem 
serving others, serving other sinners that you don't know as well. One of my favorite Spurgeon quotes uh, applies here. Brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. If he charges you falsely at some point, yet be satisfied, for if he knew you better, he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, be satisfied. It only needs a few blacker touches, and it would be still nearer the truth. It's the attitude of those who have tasted salvation. It's the attitude that leads you to salvation, isn't it? I mean, Jesus, you remember the parable in Luke 18 between the sinner and the publican going into the temple to, to, to pray? Two men went into the temple to pray, one Pharisee and one a tax collector, and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, I, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I'm not like extortioners and unjust and adulterers or, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that, that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast saying, God, be, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, the Son of God said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other one. It's the way of salvation. Humility of mind. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Think of yourself biblically, and it will lead to unity. It will also lead to salvation. Well, let me give you the fourth pursuit. These last two move a little bit quicker. The fourth pursuit to produce Christian unity is to, is to disallow self-focus. Disallow self-focus. Look, if you would, at verse 4. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. There's number four and number five. Let's look at the first half of this. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. Now, disallow self-focus. That may sound redundant from number one and number two. There's all kinds of self here, this, self that, self-glory, self-ambition, now self-focus. But this one has a different twist. It's important. This verse has something to stop and something to start. And, and it stops with, starts with stopping self-focus. The unbeliever, you before Christ, you if you're in here or you're watching and you're outside of Christ, you naturally think of yourself first, others second, and then God last. And the other believer thinks that he merits that order. The world revolved around me before Christ. That's why you have to be dethroned in salvation. New Testament reverses that, doesn't it? The last shall be first. It's God first, then others, and, and self last. I mean, you've heard the acronym of joy, right? You want to have joy? It's Jesus, others, and you. J-O-O-Y. The idea of this verb to look out for is to regard as your aim. Your goal. Don't regard your aim or your goal or your purpose in life to take care of only your own personal needs or your own personal initiatives. And you have them. 
you're commanded to, to care for yourself and, and to do certain things. He says, don't make that your only aim. I mean, isn't that why there are issues in the church? Someone has, the, has an idea that they want to be followed. Someone else has a pet theology that they demand others to see the same way. Someone else has a program or, or a conviction that they're passionate about and, and in their mind everyone else should too. Paul says those are all evidences of personal interest. And your focus should be on the interest of, of others. So don't have a self-focus only. Also have an interest for others. And that's the, that's the fifth pursuit. Deliver service to others. Here's the fifth pursuit. Now, if you're like me and you're listening to, to this list and you're going through it and you're going, number one's an attitude, number two's an attitude, number three's an attitude, number four is an attitude. I mean, this attitude thing, I'm getting it, I'm getting beat up, I'm seeing, I'm examining my attitudes, but is there something that I can do? I mean, is there an action here to obey, to help me? If you're a doer, then number five is is for you. Look, if you would, at verse 4. Do not merely look out on your, on your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So while you're busy attending to your needs, be equally concerned about the lives of those around you. I mean, that's the idea. This is nothing less than the second half of the Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments is all about God. The second half of the Ten Commandments is all about how we relate to to others, which is why Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments with, with love God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second commandment, second greatest, is love your neighbor as yourself. It's a summary. This is a, this is a, a correlation to, to that. I mean, the interest of others is to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, you can see that, don't don't merely look on your own personal interests, but also on the interests of others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, that I've heard all kinds of interpretations here. You have too. Love your neighbor as yourself doesn't mean love yourself. Like, like you and I don't do that enough, right? I mean, the first four things here is just to destroy our self-love. We, we love ourselves way too much. You don't need more self-love. You need less. It means as natural as it is for you and I to love ourselves. As natural as it is for you and I to think of ourselves and ourselves be our first concern, and we often do that and passionately do that, we're to think of others, their interests, with the same gusto. Try that without the Spirit of God. I mean, better yet, look around and because that's exactly what you see happening in the world. People masquerading as they're caring for others and and really it's self-glorification or, or some other carnal expression. But for those of us who have the Spirit of God, this fifth and final pursuit is a very, very practical tool. Deliver service to, to, to others. Paul says, look out for, make your aim, the, the interests of others. And the way to get humility of mind is to see yourself rightly, know your own heart, and then... You have no problem thinking that other people are superior uh, to you. And how do you get your eyes off of your own interests and on the interests of others? You, you serve them intentionally. And if you do, your feelings will follow. 
Scripture you've heard before. If you have odd against somebody or somebody has offended you, then, then pray for them because you can't take their name legitimately before the throne of God without being convicted about your offense. Well, you, you can't serve someone, legitimately serve them, without then having feelings of being concerned about their, their, their interests. You probably, let me say it this way, have you ever been depressed or down about your life or what's going on, having a bad day, and then a friend calls you and, and, and there's a worse situation? And you find yourself thinking, wow, I thought I had it bad. I mean, they have it really bad. And then you start having to serve them. And the next thing you know, you're not even thinking about how bad your day was, your day was before. This principle works the same way. One of the best ways to get your focus off of yourself is to serve another person. You find someone to serve and, and you do it, even if you, you don't want to at first. Just start and watch how much less you think about yourself. This is what Paul says in Romans 14. Do not be overcome by evil, but, but overcome evil with good. The offensive weapon against evil is to do good. You don't retaliate, you don't repay, because vengeance is the Lord. And you say, well then, am I just a doormat? I just let evil run rampant? No, right, right here's your answer. Your offensive weapon against evil is good. You are doing battle against evil by doing good. That's the way you overcome selfishness as well. You serve others. You overcome selfishness through service. It's your offensive weapon. And that's what you're commanded to do because you are a, a believer. Five pursuits that produce Christian unity. It's a how-to God. Deny self-interest. Disown self-glory. Develop a slave-like attitude, disavow self-focus, and deliver service to others. And do you know that we have the perfect prototype to illustrate that to us? Look if you would at verse 5. Have this mind or this attitude in yourselves which was also in, in Christ Jesus. The perfect prototype, the one who illustrated all of these things to us, the attitude and the action of service is our own Lord. Verse 5 is the summary of everything Paul just got done, done saying. Have the, the attitude of Christ who did nothing from selfishness, who did nothing from empty conceit or, or for his own glory, but the glory of the Father who came to serve, not to be served, even though he was God, a very God. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of man. He, he, he found, being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself. There's the humility of becoming obedient to the point of, of death for the joy that was set before him. He despised the cross, but he was obedient to the cross, even death on the cross. And because of that, God highly exalted him. God exalts the humble. He brings low the, the proud. And Jesus did all of that for you. And you are here and in his church because of that, of that work. He is the living illustration of all that's said here. Can we then do any less 
being his followers. I want to close with this illustration because I think it's helpful as you hear a passage like this. It just exposes your attitudes, mine too. I'm thinking, wow, how little I, uh, I serve people. I want to serve people more. Remember, it's a battle, and the victory is won when you keep fighting and whenever you keep walking. Here's the illustration. A group of tourists visiting, uh, visiting a picturesque village walked by an old man sitting beside a fence. And in a rather patronizing way, one tourist asked him, Were any great men born in this village? And the old man replied, Nope, only babies. A frothy question brought a profound answer. And his point is there are no instant heroes. There are no microwave super saints. Whether in this world or in the kingdom of God, growth takes time. And even as 1 Timothy 3 and, and, and 5 point out, your progress is evident. You progress in this. And you say, how do I do that? How do I attain it one step at a time? And consistent small steps bring great results. And it starts with faith, believing this is what I'm to aim at, and then repentance. I'm not here. And I repent, Lord. I humble myself. I help. And then faith, and then repentance, and faith, and repentance, and then salvation. I mean, sanctification begins to, to grow. Will we give the Lord what is most precious in His sight, which is harmony, the sweet music of unity in His church? And I know you well enough to say we will. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for how clear it is, how convicting it is, how encouraging it is, Lord. Uh, it's not encouraging at all to, to be told everything is right whenever there's something wrong. Your greatest graces is, is how you shine the light on us. Not to inflict some sadistic pain, but to, to bring us to to confession. Your word says that a man or a woman who tries to cover up what is revealed will, will not prosper. But if we confess and forsake it, we'll find mercy. You are the mercy giver. You are attracted, Lord, to our need. Thank you for that. Lord, people are hurting. Emotions are, are everywhere. I am so thankful that in Jesus Christ and in the Word of God we find all of the answers. May this be our heart as we live for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you don't know the Lord, um, if you're watching or even if you're here, you're here, I'll be up, up front. I'll be happy to pray with you. Um, you can always call the office and make an appointment. The Biblical Counseling Ministry, you can set up a, an appointment there and... Um, we would love as sinners who have found bread to show another sinner where they can find it as, as well. So uh, next week, I will be here, but next week, next Sunday, um, you know Tim and Emily have, Moshera have been back for a while. Next Sunday, Tim is going to be sharing uh, a little bit about Malawi and then preaching for us. So you can pray for, for him. I'm sure we'll hear some tidbits about Emily as well. And um, uh, 
uh, we'll look forward to that. So, Father, we love you. We pray you'll dismiss us with your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.